today I'm, I'm excited to talk about Juneteenth, and I struggle typically when I write a sermon uh, around the sermon title, and I sent several to my family the other day to kind of say, hey, you know, what do you think? Uh, uh, what, what do you think we should land on this sermon title for this week? And so here's, here's what I landed with. Juneteenth and the emancipation of America's enslaved people, America's first big lie. Juneteenth and the emancipation of America's enslaved people, America's first big lie. In my tradition, my faith tradition, in moments like this, we tend to begin our services or these times of reflection uh, by singing together the words of the song, Lift Every Voice and Sing. In Black History Month, uh, MLK Day, and Juneteenth as well. And so if you'll bear with me, I'm not going to sing, especially after Carmen Diane just blessed us in the way that she did. Um, but I, I do have the words here to that song, and I want to read them in your hearing this morning because they ground who I am and how I come to this moment and what Juneteenth means to me in so many ways. I invite you, if you're able and willing, to stand, as is our tradition in my community, as this song would typically be sung. The words say this, and you may have heard this before, lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. Ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. That's verse 1. Verse 2 says, Stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod, felt in the days when hope unborn had died. Yet with a steady beat, have not our weary feet come to the place for which our fathers sighed. We have come over a way that with tears has been watered. We have come treading our path through the blood of the slaughtered. Out from the gloomy past, till now we stand at last, where the white gleam of our bright star is cast. Verse 3 says this, God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who has brought us thus far on the way, thou who is by thy might led us into the light, keep us forever in the path, we pray, lest our feet Stray from the places, our God, where we met thee. Lest our hearts, drunk with the wine of the world, we forget thee. Shadowed beneath thy hand, may we forever stand. True to our God, true to our native land. Thank you. You may be seated. I get a little emotional when I read those words and I reflect on the 
pain of the people who would come to identify that song as, as our anthem. You may have heard it referred to as the Negro National Anthem. And it is a song whose lyrics absolutely define the path, the road that a broken and bruised and battered people have traveled for so many years. Traveled against their will, having done nothing to deserve the pain and the punishment they suffered, but some kind of way being able to draw themselves to have hope. Lyrics like, sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. As I think about painful parts of my own life, my history, it, it takes a lot to recontextualize that pain in many cases to a place where I can say it is in fact spurring me to have faith. It's kind of the antithesis of what we often think about pain doing in our lives. I want to give a little warning here. If you are concerned about the issue of CRT, uh, or should I say the non-issue of CRT, um, then you might be triggered by my message today. Um, because what I want to do here in the time that I have is to share a little bit about what Juneteenth is, how it came to be, and then hopefully make some connections for us about what I think that means for us today uh, as we live our lives and what it means for us as, as we struggle through, right, creating or living or having this relationship with uh, a, a God that we might believe in. The issues, the drama around CRT, uh, are quite frankly, largely a marketing campaign that has been highly effective. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name, and I use the word gentleman very loosely, of Christopher Rufo. And he considers himself a conservative activist. He's out of Seattle, Washington. And there are two tweets of his I want to read uh, because they really help us to understand this whole... Have you ever just sat and thought, like, how did CRT all of a sudden come on the radar? Like, it's a thing that's existed since the 70s, and no one has ever heard about it. And then all of a sudden, you literally have you know, uh, uh, city councils making laws about this issue. You have school boards deciding that you know, we're not going to teach this stuff in class, which, by the way, isn't being taught in classes anywhere uh, outside of college campuses. But Christopher Rufo writes on the, the 15th of March in 2021, he says, We've successfully frozen their brand, critical race theory. It's interesting when someone else gives you a brand. He says, we've, we've, we've frozen it into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category. He later tweets the same day, the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think, critical race theory. We have codified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. We do this thing in this country, we have a history of doing this thing in this country, of working really hard to shape narratives in the ways in which our desires are served best means that in many cases we're not really concerned about what is true, what is factual, what is right. We oftentimes find ourselves just aiming toward that which serves my agenda. It's a dangerous place and way to function. But it is as American as apple pie, I would say. I think what we're saying, what I feel like we're seeing with Juneteenth uh, is, is that very thing. 
One of the things the Bible says or suggests is that when people know the truth, they are in fact free. So I believe that empires, institutions, systems that are designed to oppress people are always vested in protecting and hiding truth away from the eyes of the masses because they understand that when masses see and understand truth and have a way to connect with truth, their systems of oppression are, quite frankly, at risk. It's only a matter of time before systems of oppression begin to crumble and fall when people have access to believe, to understand, and live into that which is good, right, and true. So Juneteenth, if you're the kind of person that needs a scripture for a sermon, here you go. <laughs> Exodus 6, 1 through, 9, 1 through 8, I think, says this, Then the Lord says to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand he will let them go. By a mighty hand he will drive them out of his land. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land which, in which they resided as aliens. I've also heard the groaning of the Israelites. Have you ever groaned about your conditions and wondered if, anyone cared or heard. God says here, I have also heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. We tend to situate ourselves in biblical text and the place of either the victims or the heroes. I think we think that if we are aligned with the heroes of the text, then we uh, have God's favor and power working and moving on our behalf. I think if we align ourselves with the victims in the text, right, those who are the oppressed, then we believe that God will then come and rescue us in the ways in which God rescued those in the text. A great example is a year ago, I was helping a church with some videography work. It was a white church here in the city, not necessarily a progressive church, and uh, on a given Sunday around this time, they uh, sang the song, No Longer Slaves. <laughs> I was speechless, <laughs> to say the least. The, but but the, the context was, if I place myself in in a modern context, in this position that has historical significance as well as some significance in light of the biblical text, then I can claim this sense of oppression, this place where God needs to rescue me. And so because God is on the side of the oppressed, even though I'm not oppressed, I can feign oppression, and then God is clearly on my side. We do this as a country, as a nation, over and over and over again. I want to talk about how we've done that with this notion of freeing the slaves. If I were to ask who freed the slaves in America, the most popular answer would likely be Abraham Lincoln. Right? How many of you would answer Abraham Lincoln? 
because that's what we've been told and what we've been taught. But the truth is that Abraham Lincoln, while he believed that slavery was wrong and he himself did not own any enslaved people, Abraham Lincoln had zero interest in actually freeing enslaved people in America. In fact, the Emancipation Proclamation signed on September 22nd of 1962, the document that we herald as the document that freed slave people in America, did no such thing. First, we have to understand that a proclamation by a president is not law and is not really enforceable outside of any specific bounds that Congress gives the president to enforce that proclamation. If Congress gives that president power to enforce that, that proclamation, that proclamation is not necessarily permanent, which means the next president that comes in can absolutely, by an, another proclamation of equal power, reverse and undermine the proclamation of the previous president. But not only that, the actual language of the proclamation that Abraham Lincoln signed was very particular. Here's what it said. on the other page. <laughs> it says, on the first day of January, meaning January of 1863, in the year of our Lord, 1863, all persons held as slaves, and listen to this, within any state or designated part of a state, whereof the people shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then thenceforward and forever free. Here's what he's saying. On January 1st of 1863, any state that is rebelling against the United States of America who happens to have slaves will have to give freedom to every enslaved person in their state's borders. What that means is, if on January 1st of 1863, you're in a state as a slave owner that has not rebelled against the United States of America, you are not required to free your slaves. This was absolutely intended to be an effort to push southern states to give up and end the war. This was not about freeing enslaved people. The proclamation was signed on September 22nd of 1862. 100 days later is January 1st of 1863. Lincoln and his cabinet were hoping that in the course of the next 100 days, the southern states would be afraid of the economic fall of their, of their land and of their communities by the threat of having to free their enslaved people. Guess who was not concerned about that? Northern enslavers because they were not impacted by the words written in this Emancipation Proclamation. How many of you were taught that in, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, we've twisted our history such that no one has to know or understand or live into the truth that is who we are. So we herald Abraham Lincoln as this great freer of the enslaved people, and he is in fact not. He goes on to say, now, therefore, I, Abraham Lincoln of the United States of America, by the virtue of the power of best of me as commander-in-chief of the Army and of the United States Navy, in time of actual armed rebellion against the authority of the government in the United States, and as fit and necessary war measure for suppressing said rebellion on this day in the year of our Lord, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is all about trying to 
suppress this rebellion. This is a power play. This is an economic play. This is some maneuvering that Lincoln is trying to do to end the war. This is not about freeing enslaved people. And so what's the effect? Well, there is no effect. <laughs> because these southern states have decided that they have seceded from the United States of America. So they're no longer bound by the laws of this land. They don't have to listen to anything that their president says because we're an entire separate country. The war continues to progress, and the Union Army... Is the Union the north or the south? All right, thanks. I was just checking. The Union Army is making progress, and they're making their way toward the south. And as they approach... Uh, and begin to, to win victories and battles in the states of Arkansas and Louisiana, slaveholders in those states begin to transition their enslaved people from their states over to the state of Texas. There is this maneuvering that Texas is going to be the last stand. And that if we move our enslaved property to Texas, then when this whole shindig is over, we can go back and reclaim our property. Ultimately, you probably know that on, I think, April 9th or so in 1865, Robert E. Lee surrenders and the Civil War comes to an end. And so we make a big hubbub about this notion that in June of that year, some two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect, that you know, the last enslaved people in Texas were actually freed. But the reality is that very few enslaved people were freed when the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect. Union Army sent General Granger to Galveston, Texas, and there on June 19th of 1865, he reads a general order to the people that was read in the announcement made earlier by that beautiful family. It says, the people are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, that all slaves are free, which is not true. All slaves weren't free. This is part of the lie. He says, this involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property. Let me read you something else that Lincoln said during a, a debate with Stephen Douglas for the presidency in 1858. Lincoln says, I will say then that I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. He went on to describe how he was opposed specifically to black people having the right to vote, to serve on juries, to hold office, and to intermarry with white people. So when this proclamation, this general order comes down and it says that these enslaved people now have absolute equality and personal rights of property, this is more political maneuvering. This is more... Can I say BS? Yes. BS! <laughs> That's designed to push the South and to kind of shove it in their faces that we have beat you. We, we, we have won this thing. This is not about how we're holding ourselves accountable. This was not a requirement of Northern folks at this point in time in our nation's history. It goes on to say that between former masters and former slaves, that there would be this connection here to four 
existing between them where they now become employer and hired labor. So get this. This is the notion of freedom that we want you to celebrate. June 19th. You're enslaved. You have been unfairly for all of your life. You've been mistreated during your time of enslavement. We come to you riding in on a horse and we tell you that you're free. We tell you that you have absolute equality of property and of rights in this new state of freedom that you're going to enjoy. And then we say to you, but you cannot actually leave the plantation where you currently reside. You must continue to work on the same plantation that you worked on as an enslaved person, but now you're going to be this thing that we like to call an employee rather than a slave. Is this freedom to you? Is this what we think of when we think about being free and having rights and equality in this country's context? This Emancipation Proclamation, this whole notion of freedom in Juneteenth, this, this was a, a, a power move that was designed to, again, kind of keep the economic system and structure in place because the entire nation benefited from the slave trade and from the work that enslaved people did in this country, the enslaved people of this, of this nation were the absolute engine of the economy of this country. When we talk today about America being an economic power or being one of the greatest economic you know, uh, economies in the world, all of that directly goes back to the free labor of enslaved Africans in this country during the 17 and 1800s. And so the political leaders understood that we can't really afford to get rid of these notions of slavery that exist in this nation. We, we can't afford to get rid of and to refashion an economic system that's not dependent upon low or free cost labor to an economic system that provides fair and equitable wages for every person who does work. And so we have to find a way to keep this system intact while at the same time exerting our power as the northern portion of this country wanting to control the southern portion of this country. And so we say that these freed people must now work on the same plantations as employees, and they may now work for wages. By the way, there are no laws or requirements around what those wages should look like. There is no minimum wage at this point in time. And many of these enslaved people actually became sharecroppers. And the way that sharecropping worked was, I own the land and you don't own the land and you want to work on my property. And so I say to you, fantastic, come and work on my property and you're going to grow, I don't know, corn for me. And here's what we'll do. Every year, you're going to sell me the excess of your corn that you grow. And in that excess portion of corn that you grow, I'm going to generously apply that to the fee that you owe me to purchase the land that you're working on. So in year one, if you have excess corn of $300, well, that $300 goes against the $5,000 debt you have to purchase this land. Well, guess what happens every single year? Some kind of way, you just fall short of meeting your goal. So short that, in fact, you actually owe me when the year is over. So sharecropping comes in. You were pro How many of you were taught about sharecropping and social studies or history class, and it was this great system that you were told about, right, where people were allowed to kind of own their own businesses and to have some, some agency over the economic situation in their lives, but what you weren't told 
was that the property owner manipulated the numbers every single year. So you could never actually make an economic gain and get to the place where you had freedom. America's big lie. So June 19th comes. Gordon comes in with this declaration. And for the first time, enslaved people in Galveston, Texas, see free black men roaming around their cities. Part of the army, these free black men have come to help free them so that they can have the same kind of liberty that they never envisioned or thought possible for themselves. And that began an inter interesting journey for these freed people. That very day, many of them set out in what we now think of as the first Juneteenth parade. And that parade took them from their individual plantations through town, and they landed at an AME church, African Methodist Episcopal Church. And it was at the site of that church that these families came together and they celebrated for the first time this new notion of freedom. Why is that important? That's important to me because these are people who in the midst of the most difficult, most horrific conditions that you or I may ever be able to imagine, these are people who have suffered the, the worst atrocities, the worst human atrocities that you or I might ever be able to imagine. These are people who had no reason to have hope because they were born into these conditions, their forefathers and mothers were born into these conditions, their children were born into these conditions. There was nothing that indicated to them at all that their circumstance or situation might change and they might actually be free. But some kind of way, these people were able to develop a concept and a construct of God that allowed them, at the midst of the moment when they're finally free, their initial response is, let's go together and worship God and celebrate. If that's not powerful enough for you in and of itself, understand that the theological framing of God that was given to them was one that supported their enslavement. The Bible says, slaves, obey your masters in the Lord. This is good. The slave masters, the, the, the slave masters preacher would go and the entire notion of Christianity with the slaves was to make them docile and obedient. How many of you know that there was a slave Bible? You can go to Fisk University right now today and go to their special archives, and they actually have a copy of a slave Bible that a student who came to Fisk University in the 1800s brought with them when they came to study here at Fisk University. And what's interesting about that slave Bible is that it wasn't really the same Bible that you and I have today. It was a Bible that was truncated, and there were a couple of things that were accidentally, I'm sure, left out of the text that they were given. So, for example, the text that I read this morning out of Exodus chapter 6, that didn't show up in their Bible. This idea that God would free God's enslaved people and that they would in some way become independent and victorious against their enslaver. In fact, the book of Exodus, which I want to say is 22-ish or so chapters, in the slave Bible is two chapters long. We have this way as a nation 
twisting and changing the truth in our narrative to fit our agendas, the things that we're hoping to accomplish. We have this way of manipulating the truth that we might be able to control and oppress people in ways that we otherwise would not be able to do because we understand that if people have access to and engage the whole truth, they will tear down our oppressive systems. They will band together and they will have liberty in ways that are beautiful and powerful. So why does this matter? This just, is this just some black guy that's interested in talking to you about black things and is really not relevant for the majority of us today? Well, I hope not. Um, I'm a black guy and I'm talking to you about these things that may or may not be black things, but I think this is relevant for each and every one of us. I, I share this, one, because I'm proud of the legacy of strength and power that I come from. I, I come from a people who have withstood things I can't begin to imagine withstanding. I come from a people who uh, hoped against hope. I come from a people who heard things about God that were not true and were able some kind of way to connect with that same God in a way that was good and right and true and holy. I come from a people that were told things that God believed about them that were just absolutely wrong and they were some kind of way able to reject those things that they were being taught and heard. I don't know if anyone here has any experience in that realm, but I just need you to know that sometimes the stuff that other people want to tell you that God believes about you or says about you is just not right. And sometimes it is the folk who are the most religious that are spewing the the the, the, the biggest pile of crap because they understand that if you get the truth yourself, then they can't control and manipulate you. If you get access to the truth yourself, you will walk in a freedom that, quite frankly, many of them are unable to walk in themselves. The truth is that there are a whole lot of people that are spewing religious crap every single day, and they are more bound than you and I will ever be, and they just don't know it. They're unable to see their own bondage. They're unable to see their own place of limitation. It is this notion that I have to play the game. I have to show up and I have to fit into this system. I think there's a blessing for folks who can recognize the system for what it is and who are able to stand against the system and say, yeah, I know what you say about God, but here's what I know about God. Yeah, I understand, you know, what you're writing about God, but here's what I've experienced with God. Yeah, I understand the stuff you want me to believe and to do and to think, but here is where I stand on these things because of my own experiences with this God that I believe is loving and kind and gracious and concerned about me and fashioned me after God's own likeness. That's what your book says. So how can you tell me in, in one verse, in one voice, that God has fashioned me and I am in God's image and in the same voice tell me that I am less than what God would have created? Yes. We don't understand our own hypocrisy. We don't understand our own insanity. And it's all because we want this notion of power. And one of the greatest ways that we can control and manipulate people is through our religious rhetoric. So that's the first reason I share this, because I'm proud of where I've come from. I'm proud of a people who had a theological imagination that allowed them to see God in ways that were very different than God was being presented to them. 
black folk who couldn't read because it was against the law for them to read some kind of way, withdrew stuff out of the biblical text that they never even had access to see. I mean, think about that for just a minute. These people didn't even have access to a Bible, but they had a better awareness and understanding of who God was than these preachers that were sent to preach them on these plantations. Consider that for a moment. The second reason why I share this today is because it's important to me that Juneteenth is understood. It's important to me that we as uh, people in this country understand the truth, the reality about where this country has been. Not because, you know, any white person should feel guilty or ashamed. Not because any black person should be embarrassed by the history of the things that have happened in this country. But because if we are going to be better, we have to understand and acknowledge where we are and where we've been. If we're going to experience healing, we have to understand where the pain come from and how it's affecting me right now today. If we're going to be together, we have to understand the very root of our division. To me, these are conversations that have long happened in black communities. I've known about Juneteenth for quite some time. This is not a new thing for me, but for the broader community in this country, many folks are just now discovering this thing called Juneteenth. So I think it's an important conversation that we have together as we want to move together, be together, heal together, and hopefully have a victorious life together. The third reason why I want to share this is because I believe that we all, in some way, shape, or form or another, are in desperate need of God's deliverance of something. I mean, all of us are suffering under some system, some oppression, some circumstance that we have been warring against, struggling against, wanting to be freed from. And, and by God, every single time it seems like we make some step forward, there's something that I think about the, 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 the children of Israel and how they, you know, thought they were going to be free and Pharaoh's heart was softened. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh comes back and they're back enslaved and things are worse than they were. And then Pharaoh increases their workload and they think they're going to, and they just back and forth back. And I think that there are people in this room who likely have things in your life where you want relief from. You're like, God, how long is this going to happen? How long do I have to suffer this circumstance, this thing that I'm dealing with? And today I stop by to share with you that Juneteenth is your testimony. Juneteenth is a witness to you that no matter how long you endure, that there is a God. I believe that there is a God who is concerned about you. I believe there is a God who might be sitting high, but that God is as, as well looking low. And he understands, she understands, they understand who you are, what you're dealing with, why you're dealing with it, and what the end of that circumstance needs to look like and how your deliverance will ultimately come. And I'm here to tell you today that if you can find the faith of these enslaved brothers and sisters that came long before us to hope against hope, if you can find the faith of these enslaved folks that came before us who were able to see a freedom that they had no uh, reason to be able to envision for themselves, if you can find a way to see in your own life the end that you desire, the, the good end that you desire of these hard circumstances, I'll stop by to tell you that I think that God will meet you there. I, the, the God I know is more than capable of changing your circumstance. The God that I know is more than powerful. The God that I know is, is absolutely interested in your freedom. And, and not Abraham Lincoln freedom. Where are we going to make you partially free? 
because it benefits some system that we're trying to manipulate to get something that we really want because we really don't want nobody to be free. God is interested in your true and absolute freedom today. The last reason why I share this today is because when Jesus was talking about his ministry and quoting Isaiah 61, he goes through and he says, anointing of the Lord is upon me to preach good news, etc., etc., etc. And part of what he says in there is that he understands his life, his purpose, his calling is to help set captives free. So you may be sitting in this room today and you may think to yourself, I don't really feel like I have some weight that I'm under that I'm looking for freedom from. And if that's your story, I thank God for you that that is where you are in your life. That is a blessing to, to be able to experience. But I want you to know that that doesn't absolve you from the gift, the responsibility of walking with and helping somebody else who has not yet come upon their freedom. And so if it is that we want to count ourselves as being Christ-like, if it is that we want to count ourselves of walking in the same power and authority and anointing and, and, and grace that Christ himself walked in, then we have to take on then this responsibility of helping to free somebody else. And so my question this morning is, who have you set free? My question this morning is, as you enjoy your freedom, as you enjoy your liberty, as you enjoy a life that is uh, without restriction and limitation, who are you helping experience God and life and the world and one another in the exact same way that you are experiencing it? Are you Abraham Lincoln in this story? Are you General Granger in this story? Are you the enslaver in this story? Are you the enslaved person in this? Who are you in this story? Who are you and who do you want to be? Because who you are doesn't have to be who you are. You can change from who you are to who you want to be. You know somebody who's in pain. You know someone who is struggling. You know someone who is weighted down by the difficulties of life and this world. And whether you realize it or not, however free or bound you may think that you are, you have power to extend freedom to another person. You have the ability, the capacity, the, I would even dare say, responsibility to carry freedom with you wherever you go. So that as you encounter people who are questioning themselves, their lives, whether they should live or shouldn't live, you can give them something of hope. You can share with them that despite how their circumstances may look and be, that you know about a God. And even if you don't believe in this God I'm talking about, you can at least say, I've heard people talk about a God who has brought freedom to hurting people. I've heard people talk about this God who has been able to change people's circumstances that seemed unchangeable. And however difficult, however challenged, however strained your circumstance may be, I am believing with and for you that that God 
will show up on your behalf, that that God will be in the midst of your story, that that God will come and join you in the place where you are. I want to leave you with the lyrics of one last song. To me, this song sort of speaks to this notion of how do we um, engage this construct of freedom? How do we get to this place where we understand that me being free is not enough, that, that I have to use my freedom on behalf of or with someone else who is not yet free? The lyrics of this song go like this. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Until the killing of black men Black mothers' sons is important as the killing of white men, white mothers' sons. That which touches me most is that I had a chance to work with people passing on to others that which was passed on to me. To me, young people come first. They have the courage where we fail. If I can but shed some light as they carry us through the gale. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes.